Hello and welcome to Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are fascinated by the spiritual dimension to life. I'm Liz Adikunli, former Archdeacon of Hackney, writer and chaplain to His Majesty the King. In this series, I'm meeting celebrities to hear about their lives, both the highs and the lows, and how their faith has sustained them through it all, or been tested, sometimes to the limit. My guests today have been married for 35 years. They are BAFTA award-winning broadcasters, vocal coaches, campaigners, and have both separately been awarded MBEs. Their music and television careers spanned four decades and they became specially well-known in the early noughties for their work on Fame Academy and Pop Idol, which I remember so well. And on top of all of that, their parents to four children are committed Christians and even run a church from their home. Welcome to Things Unseen, Carrie and David Grant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So you've both had, I guess, at least on the surface, what looks like a glamorous career. Carrie, what's been your favourite moment, professionally speaking? Gosh, I think there are so many moments throughout a 40-year, you just spans four decades. Yeah. I do remember back in the late 90s when we still had answer phones and we got home and we you know, pressed the switch to listen to the messages and it was, hi there, it's Mel B. I was just wondering about some coaching. We were like, oh my gosh, it's the Spice Girls. Yeah. You know, and then I guess getting Fame Academy. There's just highlights all the way along. But David and I, I think, have always made the point since we met back in the 80s that we weren't going to be too cool for school. We're going to be super excited. Whoever we meet, we're like, oh, my gosh, guess who we're coaching, you know, between each other. What about you, David? I think that for me, it's been a growing realisation, actually, that the things that really have excited me professionally have been where, as a child or as a young person, I was like... Look at that stage. Look at this theatre. And then I get to perform in that place from the stage. I mean, like the first time I stepped out on the stage at the Royal Albert Hall, it was, gosh, I've seen so many events here and now I'm seeing it from the other side. And even that's changed. For me, the professional excitement now doesn't just come from, I used to want to be the person on the stage and now I am. But... If I am on the stage, we can all go on a journey. Me and a whole bunch of strangers can become one for the time I'm on the stage. But away from the limelight, there have been some really tough times too. David, there was a point when the two of you were literally too poor to eat. Can you tell us why that happened and what that was like? Carrie was a TV presenter when we met. I was sort of like a in brackets, pop star, if you want to say. And, and I was doing lots of gigs and Carrie was doing lots of presenting. And then we went through a slightly more fallow period. But during that period, I decided that I wanted to pivot and change direction and I wanted to act. So I started acting and I cancelled everything other than the acting. And I was supposed to be going over to Dublin to do a season. And a few days before, the production company folded. And Carrie was just going through, for some reason, a fallow period there as well. We had a tough time. But looking back, I'm really glad we did. Because it feels like everything that we built from that point forward was us. And has it changed your relationship to money? 
I'm not sure. I think David and I probably had slightly different relationships to money when we met. I think David was the guy that became a pop star and bought a Porsche. I, I could spend 50 grand in Woolworths. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, it's like, I understand, David. I understand. Yeah, if you got it, spend it. That's what it's for. It's like... For me, I, I, I don't think I've ever been that impressed by money. It's not important. Although it is hugely important in other ways, isn't it? Of course, because we all yes. need to eat. So I understand the power of money, but for me, it's never been a driver or a motivator at all. And I'll, so beyond food, when is enough enough? Well, that's the thing. Because you know, the Bible I mean, talks a lot about that, like giving up of stuff. But people would argue that shelter is really important too. Yes. And mobility and cars. Where do you draw the line? So I can understand you'd have to have some conversations about what's really important for you, Carrie, yeah. and what's really important for you, David. And yeah. I think those conversations go on and you evolve and change. Yeah, they change over and time. Depending yeah. on what you're going through. I think also back in the 80s where we didn't have that money when we first got married, I was also very ill at mm. that time. And there was a cost of living crisis going on. You know, that's, that's what we're all facing. Many of us are facing now with rents and mortgages and all of that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it suddenly becomes important if you're in a crisis, I guess. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really quite important for me, or that was important, is because I grew up without, my feelings about money were completely wrong because I was one of those people who just thought you build a hedge, you use money to build a hedge against poverty, and then on the other side of the hedge you use money to build a moat and you fill it with piranha. And actually, that's such a wrong way of thinking about it because then one obsesses about it yeah. even when you've got it. And Carrie, you mentioned that during this period you were very ill and I know that you have Crohn's disease which is a chronic condition, is that right, where parts of the digestive system become inflamed. How did that affect you? Just after we got married I was in hospital for a very long, long while and had surgery, major surgery and my life got smaller and smaller and smaller and I think that really made me question my faith. My faith was only three years old at that point. And I couldn't really understand if we love a God who blesses us, why would God allow this to happen to me? How, what good can come from this? And I think that was a really big question for me as my life shrank. And how did you unpack that? I think it took a very long while. I think I had to sit in the darkness. But in that dark place, I think I reached out around me and realised that there was gold in that space. There was something precious in that space. God was showing me to think about anything that I had left, to let go of what I'd lost, because it felt like I had lost so much. My life was so small. It was just a hospital bed mm. for months. Thank you. David, you had a strict Christian upbringing as part of the Plymouth Open Brethren. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which <laughs> I understand is rather conservative. Very, uh, yeah. yes. It's conservative evangelical, isn't it, as, as a kind of movement? Even more conservative than conservative evangelical. Conservative without the evangelical. It's just, you know, we're right. Yeah. And everyone else is wrong. I must add that there are caveats to that. There were really good things. There were really positive things. There were people who really cared deeply. But my understanding of God was very, very based on behaviorism. You didn't listen to certain kind of music. You 
didn't watch certain kinds of movies. In fact, you didn't go to movies at all. You didn't dance. And it's like all the stuff that you didn't do, I did. So I just thought, you know what, man, I'm going to go to hell sweaty from dancing, <laughs> having watched The Exorcist. But, you know, it's just very, very structured. So I guess in light of that, it's probably fair to say that as a teen, you moved away from the Brethren Church. Yeah, I moved away. I moved away very gradually, just so they wouldn't notice. Right. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. <laughs> and you yet, know. and yet, you remain a Christian. There was a period of time where I thought, probably not a Christian now, because I figured that there was such a strict understanding of what a Christian was that I had been brought up in in my church culture, that if I wasn't that, then perhaps I wasn't a Christian. Mm. And that changed one day after I walked into another church and it was just like, wow, these people are actually like really quite enjoying themselves. This must be heretical. <laughs> and then I, I began to realise that actually I think that you can read the Bible and not really understand what it's saying. And I began to realise that, hold on a minute, my personality type would never fit that. And yet God made you just as you are. Just as I am. And, know, and, and loves you just as you are. And it took me a long time to realise that I did not have to change before your children came along, what would you say were the main challenges to your faith that each of you faced? I think for me, the main challenge to my faith was to discover it. I think when you've been brought up in a particular sort of expression of faith, good or bad, it is only an expression. So it was really understanding and developing an understanding of which is still ongoing where God sits on issues, not where the church sits, not where my family sits, not where a denomination sits, not where my culture sits. Where does God sit? How do you hear that voice? It's understanding what's God saying to me now, at this stage of my life, in the situation I'm in, what's right in this situation, at this place, at this time in my life. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all relationship. Which is why... Judging is so difficult as people who maybe judge other people through a Christian lens. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't because each person's journey is deeply personal and unique to them and their relationship to God is unique as well. It really is. Yeah. And you know what really helped me find this out was parenting, was that when I tried to do a one-size-fits-all with the kids and found it didn't work. And I thought, well, if God is Father, if God as the divine parent knows that one child is different to the other then one size can't fit all because I've only got four and there have to be four different ways of approaching it. You know, Four's quite a lot, David. I'm just... In my... yes. four, four, four feels like quite a lot. Only four. <laughs> well, in comparison to billions, yeah. it's not a lot. <laughs> no. Yeah, in comparison to God's kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Totally and Carrie, how about you? I think before parenting, I was desperate for a deconstruction of faith. And what I mean by deconstruction is that when I became a Christian, I was actually very good at it. I'm a rule keeper, so I can do all that stuff. I can tick all your boxes. And then I become like poster girl. And then inside I'm super unhappy because my life is spent every day with the anxiety of not knowing if I've matched up to this list that God seems to have that 
is an ever-increasing list of piety. And there was no joy in that for me beyond the first few months where I was ticking all the boxes and going, I'm knocking this out of the park. <laughs> and then kind of going, hang on a minute, but I'm not happy. And why am I depressed for the first time in my life? And so I think for me, there began this deconstruction process to find God's grace, to find the unforced rhythms of grace, to discover God in a new way and to hear God in a new way. Yeah, yeah. So you've got four children. Yeah. Only four children. (laughs) And just four children. And early this year, you published a book called A Very Modern Family, which details the story of your extraordinary family. So one of your four children was adopted, and each of the four has faced an unusual set of challenges. Mental health problems, autism, ADHD, dyslexia and other forms of neurodivergence along with various sexualities, trans and non-binary identities. And of course, your children are dual heritage too. Managing all of that together as a family sounds daunting. How do your different ethnic and cultural backgrounds inform your parenting styles? My background was I was Jamaican, living in England, and you would assimilate at home, it was very Jamaican, but out there, you know, you'd speak properly, you'd dress properly, you'd behave properly. So my idea of parenting was also that my kids would bring me credit. They'd be the ones sitting in the restaurant, reading the menu in French by the time they were five, <laughs> really sitting there very quietly and behaving. And so the template was always that, and I believe this isn't just a Caribbean thing. I think this is often an immigrant mentality. If you're suffering, people don't know. If you're poor, people don't know. If you've got two shirts, one of them's being worn while the other's being washed, your presentation to the world always has to be pristine because there are so many disadvantages. There's already so much judgment Don't make how you are, how you speak, how you look, how you behave an integral part of that judgment. You know, as my grandmother used to say, if people think you're stupid, don't open your mouth and confirm their suspicions. So my background is North London, white, English. And then I discovered when I was 18 that I was also Jewish. So it's a bit of a, it's a Jew-making home. Yeah. But um, (laughs) I think there was a very big change when I met David back in the mid-80s and I walked into the first Caribbean home that I'd ever walked into. And there, oh my gosh, there was just so much to learn from that. But one of the major takeaways from day one was there's always food on the stove. Whoever shows up gets fed. And it's open house no matter what state your house is in or if it's small or large or whatever. And from day one, I remember saying to David, I want to live like this. I was the child that was never allowed a friend home. So to walk into a home where everyone is welcome, (laughs) that was outside of my experience in that way. We probably have quite a Jamaican home in that respect. It probably reflects that hospitality Mm -hmm. that is part of Jamaican Caribbean culture. Thank you. One of your children was famously photographed with Queen Elizabeth once, I hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the oh, picture yeah. went viral. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that question. <laughs> so, 
Okay, so we're at this adoption event and David and I are really excited and we're like, this is a really lovely opportunity to take Nathan, our adoptive son, to this adoption event and he'll get to meet the Queen. What we hadn't considered is that he might not actually want to meet the Queen. This was just (laughs) us thinking, he's going to meet the Queen, how exciting. And so... (laughs) Here's one for the photo album, but we didn't know what the photo was going to be. So the Queen goes along the line and all these people are nervously saying hello and doing their little curtsies and bows and everything. And then it comes to us and I'm like, hi there, this is our child. And then Nathan was standing initially between David and I. And then Nathan just kind of shrank down. We thought he was bowing. But the bow just kept going. And it kept on going. And then he crawled back between our legs Mm -hmm. and then ran away and said bye and slammed the door. And so the Queen was left standing there, slightly speechless, if I'm honest, because I don't know if people have run away from her before. (laughs) So we were like, sorry. And when we got home... Oh, so you found him? Yeah, we got him. (laughs) Uh, And we said, Nathan, why did you run away from the Queen? He said, she was so small. (laughs) She wasn't. I just think he thought that this he queen was going to be like queen. 10 feet tall, like something supersized. She yeah. was just a like normal a person. Still yeah. on YouTube. Right. So you put Nathan meets the queen. It's still there on wow. YouTube. Watch it. It's very funny. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I will do. <laughs> With your non-binary and trans children, what has your journey been to understanding accepting their gender identity? Well, I think the first thing was when... Arlo, who is now 17, would have been about 10 years old. We're eating dinner and Arlo stands up and says, I would like to announce something. I'm now a boy and my name is Ian. And the older two children jumped straight in and said, Not Ian, that's a terrible name. Sorry to anyone called Ian. And and this was really helpful for David and I. It bought yeah, David and I some time to work out our reaction. It was a fix-your-face moment, like, yeah. because your child, whatever comes out your mouth, and even if what comes out your mouth is encouraging, they're going to read your face. So I'm not even sure what our faces were at that point because, fortunately, they were upstaged by the older two children, then going into a 10-minute conversation on a good About name. Ian. And then we said, yeah, OK, if this is who you are, then that's who you are. It's not our job to say, no, you're not, and you're not allowed to be. And I also don't think it's my job personally, and David would probably say the same, to be like, yeah, wow, great. Because you don't know where that person's going to stay as a parent. That's a very unique role that you're in to shepherd your child, which means to hold the space to to just, just jog from a little bit to one side and use the stuff a little bit the other side and to encourage your child in their identity and all that that brings, which is so much more than gender. And so... That's Arlo's journey. But they've all been slightly different, haven't mm. they? Yeah. All and we haven't them. always got it right. We haven't always got it right. Certain, certainly not me. I mean, you know, I've been misgendering the kids and all sorts. But what I had to do, I had to go on a journey. I had to go on a journey of learning. What I've discovered with my kids is that they have taken me on a journey of discovery in much the same way as I went on with my faith. Mm. And it's that wonderful thing of thinking, actually, do you know, I don't know this. So... I want to learn from you. What does this mean? I was in danger of parenting children that didn't exist anywhere other than in my head and not understanding the children that were actually in front of me. And you're willing to learn and be humble. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to be humble. And I want our children to know 
that they're not defined by gender, they're defined by character, and that there's a solidity and there's a certainty to the love that they're going to get. That's mm. not going to change. Did your faith or the teachings of the Bible ever get in the way of that acceptance? I don't think our faith did. By the time our children came out with the gender and sexuality stuff, I think that David and I had deconstructed from some of that very strict upbringing or kind of very conservative evangelical way of thinking. However, one of the things that became super important to me was to find out what the Bible says. So two years ago, I signed up to do an MA in theology at a college that is really looking at this area scripturally. And there I learned so much about, well, firstly, how to read the scriptures and the approach and then the actual scriptures themselves, which I find to be unbelievably affirming. And so that to me was a really important part of my own personal journey. Mm. For the benefit of our listeners, I'd like to say that we're coming to the subject of suicide now, which some of you may find upsetting. Two of your children have struggled with suicidal thoughts. For you as parents, that must have been devastating. How was that experience? I think to begin with, I was in a space where I wanted to try to solve the problem. And then I began to realise that that wasn't going to work. And so I changed the way that I parented. And I remember going to my child's room one day and sitting on the end of the bed and sitting there just for a minute. So I said, you know, how long are you going to be here? And I was like, oh, I'll be one minute got to that minute and they said can you go now and I said yeah and I walked out I went back the next day and I sat on the end of the bed I said are you sitting on the end of the bed again yeah I'm just doing 90 seconds can you go now yeah I'll go now I did this for like two weeks and I built up the time till I got to about five minutes and Ty one day didn't ask me to leave and said I'm really really sad and at that point it would have been so easy to come in with my 10 point program of how to solve it but I chose a different way and I just said, I can't change that and I'm really sorry that you feel that. I can't change it, but I can sit with you in it. So let's just sit in it together. And then we sat there and they cried a bit and I think I might have cried a bit. And then I left the room and that became our way of dealing with it, was just to sit with it. And Ty has been out of that space for six years now but there are moments when Ty will go, Mum, can you do that thing when you sit on the end of my bed? All my kids, I do it with all my kids now. They all love it. They have different ways of doing it. One child, Arlo, likes me. will say, just ask questions and I can do yes or no. But for some of us, it's just sitting. And that shows a real understanding, doesn't it, of your child and your child's needs and acceptance and understanding. You can't fix everything, you know, and I think that's, that's the biggest thing I've learnt, really. You've also experienced child-on-parent violence, which sounds like an incredibly difficult road to navigate. How did that unfold and how did you manage that situation? It's really difficult to navigate because what you're dealing with is somebody who you deeply love, hurting somebody who you deeply love. Mm. It's not as straightforward as, you know, victim-perpetrator. In the case of, you know, our child, it was just unbelievable childhood trauma and lots of other stuff that have made these outbursts something that has become a part of our lives. So with birth children, child-on-parent violence is in single figures. In adoptive families, it's 63%. 
people live through this in absolute silence because no one wants to be horrible about their child. Mm. <laughs> and it sounds horrible when it's your child who's hitting you. I things, think, can I just say, yeah. didn't you? Carrie looked up for help online and everything about domestic abuse is about adults. It's, you know, if this it's mainly is male to female. Mainly male to female, leave. So like to get out. I'm like, I can't get out, it's my son. Yeah. <laughs> also, what's really tough is that there is a perception that we encountered of black men being more prone to violence. I don't know why that's the case. And I don't believe that that's actually statistically accurate. But what discovered was that they would say, what did you do? This is social Tim, services. Social services. What did you do? You know, uh, are you at fault? So it's a horrifying thing where a parent is being battered and then a parent's being blamed. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult. I think this is where services are at their very worst. I think sitting with a social worker and them saying to you, Carrie, you just have to understand, you know, what would it be like for Nathan? Can you imagine if he actually killed you? Can you imagine what he'd feel like? Yeah, I kind of can, but I'm sitting here having just had my skull x-rayed and... And right now, I do need to also take care of me a little bit here. I matter in this whole equation. What can you say when you've been hit? You don't hit back. My strategy is I curl into a ball. David goes to a different floor of the house because we cannot have him blamed in any way. So he runs away, goes to a different floor and calls the police. This is a crazy way of living. And, you know, our local authority eventually said, OK, we're going to send you two security guards that can live in your house we did that for a few months and we were like, this is really not helping our child. It stops our child in those moments from being able to get to us or to me, but it's not helping us to know what's going on for this child. Where's the early life trauma? What's going on in his brain? Absolutely. What is there in the DNA? What can we do? We don't mind raising any kind of child, whatever labels there are. We just need the help. And we are really trauma-informed people, parents. So if we're not good enough, bring us the experts. He can't be the first child that's ever been through this. Where are those people? Where are those therapists? Where is that help? When is that laid on? Mm. And did that challenge your faith? I wrote about it in one of my essays, trying to find a theology for child on parent violence. And that really helped, actually, just sitting writing thousands of words about it. It's kind of quite self-indulgent. But just if, when writing a theology is trying to find what's in scripture, what's out there that can help me to process this, to make sense of it. Where is God? Where is God for me in this situation? Where is God for my child in this situation? And also, of course, where is God for David who's watching this? Where is God for my other children who are watching this? There are too many calculations yeah. that one has to do, though. In Corinthians, when Paul's, Paul's definition of love, he goes, love is faith, love is patient, love is kind. It gives all, all the characteristics of love. But then the first action of love is love always protects. So there I am loving my child loving my wife passionately. What does protection look like? If in protecting Carrie, I hurt my child, then I'm separated from my family by services. So then I'm not there to protect anybody. It's a conundrum. It also shows that we all, in that dilemma, we all desperately need the love of God. Yes. Like all of us. Your yes. son as yeah. much as you. Absolutely. As much 100% as me. so. Yeah. yeah, because sure as anything, no one is going to helicopter in and help you. So you have to work it out for yourself. And everybody's a victim in there. You have run a church from your home for the past 14 years. Mm. Firstly, that sounds very exciting. 
and I'd like to come along. <laughs> You're welcome. so welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> what drove the decision to set up the church? I think we started as a social experiment, actually. We weren't calling it church for the first week and then loads of people turned up and we were like, OK, maybe we've got a church. We were struck by this phrase, which is people rarely behave out of character. Like, OK, if that's true, yeah, we that's true. We all behave out of who we who think we, think we, we are. are. Right. So if you rarely behave out of character, who you believe yourself to be is going to affect your behavior. So why are we focusing on behavior and not focusing on who are you in Christ? So that was what we said. We would say, let's do a space where we don't tell people how to live. We just tell them who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And something just that, happened. The magic just happened. And we were like, whoa, this is great. We also wanted a space where it wasn't top down leadership, that it, you could interrupt the sermon. You could walk out. You could get annoyed. You could experience emotions other than crying or joy, that there was a breadth of experience that you could have in that space and that everyone could show up as themselves. And also we'd been in large church communities where you knew everybody, you know, not with 10,000, knew loads of people there. And we came to a realisation that many of our relationships were a mile wide and an inch deep. What would it be like if you actually journeyed together, if you really did life miles together, if you showed each other the good, the bad and the ugly, and you didn't judge, but you just loved? What would happen? And Carrie, you're studying for ordination in the Baptist Church. What inspired that and how has it changed your views towards faith? I think I felt it was important to be ordained, seeing as we were leading a space. We started off with, I think there were seven leaders to begin with. We had two vicars in that group as well. And they've gone off and done other things. I was like, actually, there needs to be an ordained person, so I need to go and study. Plus, I wanted to get the theology on LGBT stuff and black theology as well. So there was this desire that just kind of all culminated two years ago in me signing up for college. But my mind has been blown by what I've learned and the essays I've had to write and it's been really exciting. And I've got my dissertation this year, which is all about what can I learn from the trauma narratives of people that have withdrawn from conservative evangelical churches. I've a real heart for that, those that are now on the outside that still want to love God. So this is not to knock the church. I sound like I'm knocking the church, but maybe that's just not where God's placed me right now. Yeah. Well, all the best with your dissertation. It sounds like such an interesting and important topic as well. Yeah. What would your advice be to those going through challenging times and struggling to cling on to their faith? My advice would be that God is in the challenge with you. That because you can't feel God's presence doesn't mean that he's not present because you don't know how you are going to navigate the challenge. It doesn't mean that you won't. I think for me it would be you're not alone and you're allowed to be. You're uncertain, you're angry, you're terrified self. All of that is okay, but this too shall pass. And looking back over your lives together, what would you say has been the most rewarding experience to date, even if it was difficult at the time? My most rewarding, and I I don't think it was at all difficult, but I think meeting David is just meant to be. I think David absolutely changed my life and continues in a kind of evolutionary way and revolutionary way to change me and to make a better me. I echo that. I think for me it's been the fact that I am with somebody who I know 
absolutely loves me, will challenge me, but love me, will champion me, but love me, will ask me to explain why do you think that's right? Not because they think it's wrong, but because they want me to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And to have another person who actually sees in me things that I don't see in me. I think that over the years, there are parts of me where I can say I've grown to become the person that Carrie thought I was. Carrie and David Grant, thank you so much for being here and chatting with me. One of the things that I will take away and continue to reflect on is just how open and honest you have been, that you are willing to share your vulnerabilities, not only with me, but with the world. You have this platform and you're saying, I'm not going to present as being perfect. I'm going to be me. And that is the most powerful place to be. Mm. Because what you do is you strengthen other people. By being vulnerable, you strengthen others. And I'm sure people will be listening to this and they will be able to relate to so many things that we never talk about, like parenting and relationships and our relationship with God and issues of identity and acceptance And I'm pretty sure that we all struggle with those. And very few of us are brave and bold enough to actually say that and then to say, I'm going to use my experiences to help others. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being brave and bold and courageous and all the very best for the future. Thank Thank you. you. I'm Liz Adikunli and this has been Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are spiritually curious. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Thanks for listening. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.